You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello, this is your host, Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager at Asia House. And on this episode, we bring you a topic which is extremely relevant due to the current socio-political events related to race and identity that have been ramping up around the globe in the last months but that actually carry a long history behind them. And we'll focus on China, as along with the US, have been at the core of the discourse. And to walk us through this conundrum, we have with us Nixi Kura, who serves currently as Senior Teaching Fellow at SOAS University of London and as Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Glasgow. She was recently senior fellow at the Royal Academy of Arts and until 2017 director of the Arts of China postgraduate programs at Christie's Education. And just a reminder to say that today's episode is in partnership with the Baraka Trust and comes also with the support of the Altair Trust and the Rohan Trust for Culture. So Nixi, 2020 has been a defining moment for race, identity and nationalism in the world. Earlier this year, we have seen race issues being faced in China during the start of COVID. How special or how different are these reactions in China to the rest of the world? And what is the history behind them? That's a great question, Juan. The um, reaction to crises often can stem from long-standing fears uh, of incursions and into a coherent sense of self. Yeah. Uh, in the Chinese case, there are histories of violence um, and uh, antipathy towards foreigners um, that would be instigated or encouraged um, in periods where uh, th- there's a perceived need for coherence. Uh, so just to uh, point out some recent People's Republic of China instances of this, the recent violence uh, against African Blacks uh, in Guangzhou during the beginning of the COVID, where they were, for instance, not allowed to go into restaurants. And that um, also has long-standing um, history and long-standing um, biases against Blacks. Part of this stems from a very long-rooted notion that pure Chinese, um, Han Chinese, we call Han Chinese, um, which derives from the Han dynasty, in 200 BC to 200 AD. And this idea that there's this pure Han race, right? And everything that's not pure Han is barbarian. So all sorts of peoples were categorized as barbarian in this context. Amongst those are peoples of Southeast Asia, of of Central Asia, uh, even uh, Europe, um, who were then categorized as such. Now in Post-49, the uh, People's Republic of China established um, what they called the 56 National Minority System, uh, where the diaspora of these various peoples within China were categorized, um, as well as so-called local ethnic minorities within the Chinese geopolitical space, uh, are categorized as such. Uh, And Han is one of these, but of course is the majority rule. Um, there's this tendency to essentialize uh, race um, into these 56 groups. Uh, and of course, it's advantageous to be a member of the majority. So uh, that has 
affected uh, the way people view themselves. If you ask a Chinese person, for instance, today, whether they're Han or not, um, even if their name is the same Ma, uh, which was the name given to Muslims, uh, uh, Ma as Ma as in Muhammad or Mahomet, there's of course a possibility that back in the day they would be Muslim, right? But um, most Chinese would claim that they are Han. It's, it's a very complex history. And now you'll be able to, you know, meet someone named Mai and suggest perhaps that they had um, Muslim um, origins in China. So how did these social and ethnical differences appear? You and I discussed before the Song Dynasty. For our listeners, this was the period around the 10th to the 13th century. And you determined that this was a key moment that defined the formation of the identity of Chinese people. The Song is quite interesting because in the um, Chinese historiography, uh, the Song is a pure Han Chinese dynasty. The Song dynasty uh, reunited what had been warring states uh, under a new purely Chinese banner. However, they did suffer incursions from the northern barbarians, and their policy back then was to appease them and pay them off with silk, with gold, with money, uh, to keep them from invading. Now, we know that um, appeasement never works. <laughs> and of course, these barbarians were encouraged to ask for more and more money, to the point where eventually bankrupted the Song state, and they eventually sacked the Song capital. After the fall, uh, after the sacking, the uh, Song were forced to flee south of Yangtze River and established what we would, what we now call the Southern Song. Now that Southern Song in Chinese historiography is often seen as this, this moment where a wounded state, right, looks to the North that they lost with nostalgia, starts to look inwards. But as a matter of fact, I mean, when you look at it from an economic point of view and from a political point of view, the Southern Song had to survive. And, and the way that they survived was to really ramp up trade, and particularly trade with Southeast Asia and uh, the lands beyond. Um, and it's during this period that we see established policies that encourage trade with merchants um, who were operating in Southeast Asia and the Malay Peninsula and to draw them in. Uh, this included uh, tax abatements and lowered regulation, uh, the opening of many ports. And that was problematic at first because the opening of many ports meant they, they couldn't control the taxation. Um, so eventually in 1087, they designated uh, a port in present-day Fujian province in the southeastern tip of uh, the Chinese mainland, uh, Chuanzhou, um, as the main port for that Southeast Asian trade. Now, what did what got traded, you might ask? Well, the Chinese wanted mostly luxury goods, uh, such as um, uh, aromatics, perfumes, metals, uh, metalware. At first, uh, that was uh, their uh, main uh, goal. And what they would trade in uh, exchange uh, would be what's the Middle East wanted, uh, what Southeast Asia wanted, and that was, uh, for the most part, ceramic, uh, the technology of which was still held um, in monopoly by uh, China at this point, and copper. The Song actually experienced a, a massive outflow of copper uh, because its currency was uh, bronze and copper coinage internally, and these were actually being bought 
by the Japanese, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East as copper itself, as a material, and then it would be melted down wherever. But the ceramics were uh, really um, quite desirable um, outside China. So therefore, my understanding is that trade is enhanced to be able to secure the survival of politically threatened societies. But often, trade means the breaking of boundaries and the intermix uh, of different ethnicities. Was this the case during the time? The, the border of the Yangtze River, which demarcated the old northern Song for the new southern Song, was geographic border. But there's this notion of the border between Han nationalism, um, or Han, the Han people, and the others, uh, the barbarians the non-Han. In the Southern Song, because of the need to rebuild the dynasty fiscally, uh, it was very convenient to loosen these boundaries, these borders. And in fact, uh, the last superintendent of the Chenzhou maritime trade uh, monopoly was a Muslim named, a surname Pu, who uh, after the uh, Song gets conquered by the Mongol Yuan dynasty, remains a superintendent, and all subsequent superintendents after that were descendants of that uh, Mr. Pu. So um, uh, it was convenient to let go of the borders in order to increase trade. But when in late in the Yuan dynasty, around the late 13th century, um, there was a Sunni uprising uh, of these uh, these diaspora Muslim traders who had settled in Chanzhou, uh, whose uh, descendant, uh, who was superintendent at the time, um, led the um, quelling of that rebellion. That repression of the Sunnis actually led to another sort of second diaspora uh, to Indonesia, to Java, to, uh, and to other parts of Southeast Asia of the massive number of um, Muslim immigrants who um, had settled in Chuanzhou. Like, so it goes back and forth, um, and the boundaries harden and soften depending on historical circumstances. We keep referring to the presence of Muslims. How far back can their history be traced to? The influx of Muslims or the diaspora of Muslims um, in China is actually a very, very long-standing one. They came from Central Asia. The Uyghur, for instance, were part of the Tang dynastic polity that's you know, considered the great efflorescence of Chinese culture um, from the 7th to the 10th centuries, the apex of the Silk Road. Um, the Uyghurs were part of that polity, but then became barbarian uh, when one of their officials named Anlushan rebelled and sacked the capital and forced the Tang emperor to flee south. And so their attitude nowadays to Uyghurs could be traced back to that moment where they had the temerity to, to seize power. However, the Muslim diaspora that we see now in areas such as Southeast Asia and in Qinghai province in North China, they're called in China the Hui. And there are you know, substantial numbers of Hui still remaining in China. Some of them are from the, the um, land route over Central Asia, but most of those came over through maritime trade um, in the Song and subsequent dynasties, such as the Yuan, the Mo great Mongol dynasty, that uh, encompassed um, all of East Asia, most of East Asia, not counting Japan, uh, and 
all the way to Hungary um, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and most of um, the Mediterranean uh, and Red Sea area uh, around um, Persia and so on. So did these foreign elements had an impact in the formation of the later Chinese state? When the Mongols were in power in China, they actually raised the status of merchants. Uh, many of these Mongol and Arab and Muslim and Uyghur merchants to a status above that of the Han Chinese. Whereas before merchants would be on the bottom, it was switched. The world was upside down from the Chinese point of view because then under the UN, the Chinese were on the bottom. We're not allowed to participate in government or in trade. And this, these Semarin, um, the uh, privileged merchants, all of a sudden had a high status. Now, what does this uh, say? Well, okay, trade is very important, yes. And it creates um, new, it opens up um, what might have been before the status quo, where these barbarians and merchants were considered a persona non grata, right? The, the reversal um, of that status uh, had long-lasting effects. Um, one is that um, it increased the horizons of, of China beyond that of what had been traditionally considered the geopolitical boundaries of China um, and the ethnic dimensions too, right? Um, can you imagine like Muslims and Mongols, uh, Uyghurs running China? However, it had a reverse effect in the Chinese imagination. And the Yuan is seen, again, as this another origin point in which the Chinese are kept down um, and are oppressed. And so in, in Chinese historiography, the Yuan-Mongol period is a period where Chinese nationalism grows. I mean, it seems so strange to look back to the 14th century as a, a, a really crucial moment. Uh, in uh, the formation of, of 21st century Chinese national identity. But this feeling of having been brought down by barbarians, by foreigners, is, is one that is maintained um, as something to be avoided at all costs. Uh, and the, the feeling of uh, being oppressed is, for instance, still coloring the conversation, let's say, between the U.S. and China um, around trade. Now, you could say that in the Mongol period, we see an, an efflorescence of Muslim and Islamic and Persian culture moving towards China, and that definitely leads to uh, an efflorescence of culture, the creation of blue and white porcelain, which is now considered quintessentially Chinese, but uh, stems from eastward-looking culture. Um, and what's amazing about this trade is that actually, let's say in, in, in the ceramics, the, um, the manufacturers uh, of these goods in China would start, of course, to fashion uh, their goods to appeal to the local consumers in those areas. So one of the, the great kind of shapes that we see developing is the kendi, uh, which has no domestic use in China whatsoever. And what is a kendi? It's a, it's a kind of ewer with a long, uh, straight spout on one end, differing heights of the bodies, a sort of globular body, which um, was for, uh, in use for Muslim rituals. And it originally came to China as um, a metallic shape. Uh, but this candy, which was produced by literally hundreds of kilns in Guangzhou and Fujian, 
to appeal to the Southeast Asian market uh, has been excavated uh, from the Philippines to to uh, Indonesia to Malaysia all the way to Persia. So um, this was a very highly desired product F from the Chinese point of view. Uh, these kinds of ware is not considered um, part of the classical Chinese ceramic tradition, which rests still largely in that Northern Song uh, production of ceramic, the Northern Song that was lost, right? The nostalgia for that um, Chinese classical past that uh, no longer exists. So the Southern Song kilns were more efficient in producing these wares. We're talking, you know, 50,000 pieces every month. Uh, hundreds of kilns, this, this stuff moving across, um, uh, transshipped across Southeast Asia. You're talking about a massive number of ceramics that do not count in um, the traditional sort of study of Chinese ceramics. Well, they're not. Are they Chinese or are they not Chinese? They're made by Chinese. They're made in China, uh, but the users, end users, are not Chinese. So it doesn't. It's not constituted as part of the great Chinese ceramic. Uh, tradition. If we fast forward to the 19th century, we see a similar situation um, in which uh, the control of the trade is this time taking place out of Canton, uh, Guangzhou, uh, in present-day China, primarily to control European traders, where the introduction of opium by the British via the Raj, via India, was actually reducing productivity in China. And so it's the, you know, the Qing uh, emperors ban the use of opium and this you know spirals into an opium war in 1839 and then another second opium war in, in the 1860s so then you have again a closing and opening of borders and an idea of us the chinese people the han people against a barbarian and there are different names um, given to the europeans and one of them is you know running dog and, and and so on. So the, the, the use of, the, of these names, these namings, again, fix not just geographic boundaries, but racial boundaries and ethnic boundaries and political boundaries. Under the current government uh, in China, that 19th century moment uh, losses, uh, multiple losses to Europe uh, with Guangzhou or Canton as the node for um, the Opium Wars, uh, has been restated as a m moment of national humiliation. And that is the origin myth, and therefore, of the People's Republic of China, right? That it is partially, uh, has, has partially arisen from uh, the humiliations suffered under the West. And this feeds uh, much of its uh, contemporary discourse um, in its relationship with China versus the West, where the West is this you know, sort of amorphous um, everything outside of China, uh, much like the barbarians uh, in uh, earlier times uh, were um, an amorphous enemy or, uh, of China. Now, it's said that um, a famous sociologist named Anderson, who wrote a book called Imagine Communities, and established that uh, in order to sort of maintain this idea of a, of a a national identity you need to have certain certain things so one of the things you need is an origin myth and we talked about that briefly already this idea that the han has an origin myth uh, it starts back in 200 bc uh, and everyone descended from that 
and every Han person has to believe uh, that they are part of that ancient history in order to maintain um, this idea of Hanness. And in, in order to imagine this community, there also has to be this development of the dissemination of knowledge through, let's say, mass printing technology in order for this idea to circulate more widely. This is, of course, already very highly developed in the Chinese case. The printing is, uh, is invented uh, in the 6th century and used by Buddhists to propagate uh, and proselytize uh, their religion that early on. So bearing this in mind, do you think that trade is the solution to overcome social boundaries? In, in moments of intensive trade, we see the lowering of these national boundaries and uh, a kind of efflorescence of mutual benefit leading to genuine cross-cultural interaction. The, the Muslim diaspora to Chipanjo, uh, first in the Southern Song and then in the Yuan, led to the building of uh, many, many mosques. Sadly, only one is maintained as a mosque in Chipanjo today, following a series, that series of uh, oppressions. But um, when the traders came from the South Asian subcontinent, they built their temples as well. There were Hindu temples uh, we have in records. They mixed freely uh, in a city of uh, half a million people uh, in Trenjo, uh, where traders of all sorts from all parts of, of the world um, rub shoulders. Um, this is, of course, an ideal um, that trade can bring about this kind of harmony. Right. But hopefully we could see trade taking on a similar role in uh, current times. I think we are privileged that, in fact, you know, China has contributed to a kind of movement of goods in a way that, that creates connections amongst people. So do you think this is actually going towards a direction of tolerance? And, and I actually wonder also what encouraged you to study China and to focus on China. I'm ethnically Chinese, but only like, you know, one eighth or something Chinese as part of this um, diaspora from China. Again, yeah. through trade, right? These are Chinese who are trying to find uh, opportunity outside of their homeland. And many of the Bhutanese emigrated to the Philippines, Taiwan, and to other parts of Southeast Asia. Yeah. And the Hakka went to Singapore and uh, the Malay Peninsula. Part of my personal trajectory uh, in China. Um, I, I love the language. I loved uh, the fact that there is this aesthetic and visual quality to the, the sounds um, that seem so different to, to my own education. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. But then um, once you get into the field, you realize in order to, to study China, you have to really, really love that because the, the current conditions of doing research in China um, is very difficult. And so you end up in a space where you both love what you're doing, but you also hate what you're doing. <laughs> and a, a part of the problem here um, is retaining a kind of objectivity and a love for China and separating the government from what it's doing to its people, right? So, so, as, so as not to, to fall into the trap of not liking someone because they are, you know, fill in the blank, Chinese or because they're black, because they're white. These essentialist notions, uh, right, that are continually uh, maintained by society in various, in various forms. The essentialization of colors is not so different from the essentialization of race or the essentialization of nation. So Nixie, what do you think we can all learn 
about these historic and artistic processes? And what does it tell us about the global sociopolitical direction we're heading to? Uh, although I would I would like to you know foresee a time where we don't have um, these boundaries, which end up you know hardening biases and prejudice and so on. I would like to envision uh, that in the future, what, there would be no national boundaries, but it's not going to happen because um, power always intervenes, right? And um, there are going to be entities, whether those be individual people or uh, governments or entire nations who are uh, united in this notion of themselves as a people are always going to want to you know, retain and wield that power. You know, trade can be helpful in this, in this respect because um, power is not uh, rooted within those national boundaries per se. But then you've got this problem of the power devolving to the companies. <laughs> Right. So, you know, the current role of China in, you know, internet boom and the dissemination of knowledge. This is a specific kind of trade, but one that has been so influential in the way we think of ourselves these days, right? We're talking virtually. I'm in the States, you're in London. Uh, and this technology and the way we think of ourselves within that space, as disembodied voices, as, uh, as flat figures on a, on a screen, so it has um, a lot, uh, we have a China to thank for a lot of this technology. So um, well, what happens? There is no, you know, lovely paradise, borderless earth where we all get along. Um, that's not going to happen. But uh, if we can sort of manage uh, to, uh, to keep those borders in mind um, when we uh, engage with other peoples, regardless of um, color or nations, and then as long as we keep engaging, I think um, we will be fine. Hopefully. I'm very optimistic. Well, Nixie, thank you so much. It has been wonderful. We're extremely grateful that you have shared your time to walk us through this very important topic that is particularly relevant in the current times and that helps us to better understand the reasons and the, and the social developments behind certain communities in different parts of the world and in particular in this case in China. I very much look forward to be able to talk more to you soon, uh, hopefully once we're able to open our doors. So we really would love to see you at Asia House. Thank you, Juan. It's been a real pleasure and I'm looking forward to seeing you back in London. And thank you all of you who listen to us every week. Please do keep visiting our website and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. We look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, take care and be happy. You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org.